Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. I was about to, my brain is so weird. I was about to shout, good morning, Vietnam. Because <laughs> you're sitting at, a microphone. I'm sitting at a microphone. Uh-huh. And my brain just connected to a movie scene. To a movie scene. That's funny. That's the way my brain works. Anyway, welcome everybody to another episode of the Ask Christopher West show, hosted by none other than the unrepeatable Wendy West. (laughs) It's true. You're unrepeatable. That's what we say to everybody. Aren't we all? We are. We are. You know what? I want to tell them something. Yes, tell them. Okay. So recently a new thing happened to me that had never happened before. You know how we both say at the start of the podcast, hello, podcast listeners. So I don't know. Thomas told me recently, our son Thomas told me that that's kind of an unusual little expression we have. We call our listeners, listeners our podcast listeners. But anyway, what I wanted to tell all of you is that recently I was just in a Friendly's restaurant. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Picking up our teenage children who had been there with their friends. And there I am um, standing next to their table waiting for them to finish up. And a podcast listener came up to me and introduced himself. He said, are you Wendy West? And I said, yes. And he said, I'm a podcast listener, <laughs> and I was not with my slightly more recognizable husband, Christopher West. I was just by myself, and he knew who I was and came and said hello. So his name is Joe. So, Joe, thank you so much for coming and saying hello in that random location of a Friendly's restaurant. It was pretty exciting for was me. Was he friendly? Uh, of course he was. <laughs> well, you were at Friendly, so yeah, I'm exactly. assuming everybody's friendly. So, anyway, very... Very great to get to meet Joe and just feel that beautiful connection. You're in a place where it just seems like a bunch of activity and human bodies without knowing anything about them. And and to have that real connection that we felt there was a real gift. It is is really great to put faces to our podcast listeners. We know there are thousands of people around the world who listen. And we hold you in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And when we get a chance to meet you guys, it's really a special gift. Yeah. Do you have any updates for us from the TOB Institute? I do indeed. This episode, I'd like to encourage people to look at our schedule of Made for More events. Oh, We're yeah. in the middle of our touring season when we take Made for More, our kind of premier event on the road. So if you are in the United States, we have done this internationally, but um, for the rest of our touring season, which goes through early June, uh, we're going to be primarily here, exclusively here in the United in the States. United States. Uh-huh. So check out uh, where we're coming. Maybe we're coming to a parish or an auditorium near you. We'll have the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And I also want to encourage anybody who might be interested, we've talked a lot about the pilgrimage to France, and we certainly encourage people to consider that, but we also have a pilgrimage to Mexico City in June that's going to be led by my esteemed colleague, Jen Settle. And if you have ever wanted to see the tilma and dive into the mystery of Our Lady of Guadalupe, 
It is so powerful. I've led pilgrimages there three or four times. It is so powerful to enter into the mystery of the tilma. The tilma tells the story of the theology of the body. I kid you not. The tilma is full of symbols that spoke to the native Mexicans uh, in their language using their whole system of uh, glyphs and it's like an, their kind of alphabet. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about that, go to YouTube and just type in Christopher West, Our Lady of Guadalupe. I, I, years ago, I did a, a video that's, I don't know, 45 minutes or something, unfolding the mysteries of the tilma. I might have done a, like a two or three part series on it. Anyway, you can check that out. But also consider going on that pilgrimage in June. Great. You ready for a question from a patron? I am. This is from a patron named Hannah. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Thank you for the witness of your ministry and your marriage. I feel like when I learn about TOB, I'm touching the pulse of truth. Mm. I have heard an argument in support of, quote, homosexual marriage, which claims that a gay couple can live out the signs of self-giving love, faithfulness, and spiritual fruitfulness. I know it's not right to claim that a same-sex union produces a spiritual fruitfulness similar to a celibate vocation, but could you please unpack the difference for me? Bless you, Hannah. Uh, first of all, Hannah, thank you so much for your monthly support of the work that we do at the Theology of the Body Institute. So grateful to you. I would urge you, urge you, please, to get a copy of my book, Good news about sex and marriage, where I have an entire chapter on the whole issue of same-sex relationships, same-sex, uh, you know, we have to put it in quotes, same-sex marriage, because there's no such thing, right? If we understand what marriage really is, we understand that it is impossible biologically, theologically, anthropologically, ontologically impossible for two people of the same sex to marry. Why is it impossible for two people of the same sex to marry? Because it is impossible for two people of the same sex to engage in the marital act. Right? There are all kinds of human love Marital love is not the only kind of human love, right? There's the love of a mother and a child. There's the love of an uncle and a niece. There's the love of best friends. And then there's sexual love. What is sexual love? Sexual love is the love of the sexes that enable male and female to join in the sexual act it is the sexual act because it is the union of sexual organs, right? That is a very specific kind of love, the love that involves the genitals, right? It is impossible. Just take note of this. This, this, this is the crux of the matter. And, and I'm not laughing because I'm being flippant or something. I'm, I'm laughing because when you see it, it's so obvious, uh, but the world just doesn't see it. And I'll explain in a minute why I think the world doesn't see it. 
but it is impossible, absolutely physically impossible for two men to unite their genitals. It is absolutely biologically and every other way impossible for two women to unite their genitals. It's impossible, right? Genital union, and if we need to be more specific, the union of the penis and the vagina, but it's not body parts. It's not penis and vagina. It's male and female, because that penis is not just a penis. That's someone's penis, and that vagina is not just a vagina. There's no such thing as a vagina. <laughs> There's no such thing as a penis. All you have is Bill's penis, or Henry's penis, or George's penis. There's no such thing as a vagina. All you have is Wilma's vagina, and uh, you know Beth's vagina, and, and Henrietta's vagina. You, you have someone's vagina. You have the person who is a woman, and the, the person who is a man, and it is their genitals. It is the genital distinction that allows them to engage in genital union. What are our genitals for? That is the bottom line question. Why did God give us genitals, right? And why is this even a controversial question in our world? It, it didn't used to be a controversial question, but let me just go through a few questions here. What are ears for? They're for hearing. What are eyes for? They're for seeing. What are lungs for? therefore breathing. None of that is controversial. But you get to this question, what are genitals for? And we give the obvious answer, genitals are for generating. Right? And that's all of a sudden controversial. It shouldn't be controversial. We, we should be able to recognize what the genitals are for. It's, it's, it's simply undeniable that a man's body is designed to generate new life with sperm, and a woman's body is designed by God to generate new life with ova, right? And it is genital intercourse that allows the sperm to find the ova, and genital intercourse that allows the ova to open to the sperm. I always get the ova and ovum. What's the singular and the plural? <laughs> Ova is plural. Ova is plural. So <laughs> I always get that mixed up in my brain. So the ovum, there could be ova, right? Yes. That would be fraternal twins. Sure. If they're two ova. Absolutely. Right. Moving right along. The ovum and the sperm are looking for each other. It is impossible for that to happen with the same sex. It's just impossible. It can't happen. And that kind of love, genital love, love that involves the union of genitals, is called marital love. That's what marital love entails. That's what marital love involves. That's what marital love, that's what consummates marital love. The reason two men cannot marry is because it is impossible for two men to express marital love. Two men are absolutely meant to love one another. Two women are absolutely meant to love one another. Uh, of course I'm meant to love other men. Of course women are meant to love other women. But what does that have to do with their genitals? Right? Nothing. 
In fact, there are relationships in which genital activity is utterly, utterly contrary to love. Utterly contrary to love and utterly contrary to the very purpose and meaning of our genitals. Why are we, why are we, why do we find this so hard to accept in the modern world? Why are we blind even to this reality? I would put it this way. We're looking at human sexuality with condom-colored glasses. And by that, we are removing, we have removed with contraception, with that whole mentality. It's the way, it's the filter through which we see the world now is contraception. And when you render the genitals unable to generate, you are rendering the very purpose of the genitals null and void. And the goal, when you, when you use contraception, when you embrace the whole mentality of, of a contraceptive worldview, the goal of genital activity is thrown back on itself. It's no longer about forming family bonds and bringing the next generation into being. The goal becomes pleasure. And as one of my professors once put it, this is not table talk, this is not the polite way to say it, but sometimes we kind of need to be hit between the eyes, and this is how he said it, and it kind of shocked me, but it shocked me in a good way, it woke me up to realize what was going on. He put it this way, as soon as you sever orgasm from procreation, any orifice will suffice. You can't really argue with that logic. When we embrace contraception, we have no basis for recognizing the problem with homosexual activity. Put it this way. When you understand what a man and a woman are called to do with their genitals, i.e. generate new life, it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to raise what two men or two women might be doing with their genitals to that level. It's impossible. However, it is not impossible to reduce what a man and a woman might be doing with their genitals to the same level as what two men or two women might be doing, pursuing sterile pleasure. And that's what we did when we embraced contraception. We unwittingly homosexualized sexual activity. We, we rendered it sterile. And if, if sexual activity is just the sterile pursuit of pleasure, then we can understand what, if that's marriage, if that's marriage, okay, then what are people going to fight for? Marriage equality. When we hold up what marriage really is, it's not sterile union. It's the call of the two to become one flesh so that the next generation might come into being. When we understand what marriage really is, we understand why it's impossible for two men or two women to do it. And I know what some might be thinking out there. Well, what about a man and a woman who are unable to have children? Or can a couple past childbearing years not also enter marriage? If you can engage in that act which God designed for the generation of children, you can get married, right? You, you are, it's not up to you to determine whether or not it ends up in a child. That's in God's hands. But we must do nothing to render it sterile, right? So a couple past childbearing years or a couple who experiences they're unable to have children, 
they can still have a beautiful marriage. They are still able to engage in that act which God intended for the generation of children. But um, two men or two women, it is absolutely impossible. They cannot engage in that act which God designed for the generation of children. It's impossible. In a man and a woman who are unable to have children, you have a defect of nature, right? Or if they're past childbearing years, that's not a defect of nature. That's just the course of nature. But in two men or two women, you are acting contrary to mm. nature. Mm -hmm. And that's the key distinction. Uh, and just another angle at it, uh, I'll put it this way. I hope this is clear by now. If both sexes have the organ, it's not a sexual organ, right? And forgive me for being frank, but in our world today, we need to say it as it is. Uh, an anus is not a sexual organ. Both sexes have one. A mouth is not a sexual organ. Both sexes have one. We can only describe as sexual organs those organs that distinguish men and women. Again, two men cannot marry because it is impossible for them to have sexual intercourse. Whatever they might be doing with their genitals, it's not sexual intercourse. It's not genital intercourse. What it really amounts to, if we give it the proper species, I'm giving a, using a technical language here, but this is moral theology, the species of same-sex genital stimulation is actually masturbation. It's mutual masturbation. And so is a contracepted act of sexual intercourse. It's The species is mutual masturbation. I know I'm kind of zipping through this, and I'm being rather uh, clinical about it or technical about it. Uh, I know these are real human beings involved. I know there, there are pastoral sensitivities here, but I'm just trying to cut through some of the confusion in order to answer this question and put the truth in the light. None of this, said, none of this is said to wag fingers, to shame, to scold. I got my own long laundry list of issues to deal with in my life. I'm saying it to come into the light so we can see clearly, think clearly, speak clearly, and understand clearly the church is not crazy here. The church is calling every human being to the fullness of what it means to be a human being made in the image and likeness of God. What I am most helped by, and I, I, it's all helpful, and I've had a lot of time in my life to process it, so I, I, I can imagine that some people listening are kind of going, I think I need to listen to that again. That was a lot. But, yes, it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one thing is, um, well, there are two things that I find so helpful. One is the clarity about that the, the love of a man and a woman, while it brings sexual pleasure to both, and that is God's plan, that is not the only goal of their coming together. That it's so apparent when we look at the the result of their union that God has an awesome plan here where he has given them this miraculous honor of yes, cooperating yes. with bringing new life into the world. So that confusion only comes in when we have 
forgotten that that's the most beautiful aspect of God's awesome plan for making us this way, that we can be in his image and that it can bring new human beings in his image into the world. So, and how have we forgotten it? Because we've chosen, because we're fallen and broken in this world. And you go back in the Bible, you see all throughout the Old Testament, there's all kinds of comments about people, you know, misusing the gift of sexuality going way back, but it's all coming after the fall. Right, right. So we, yes, we've inherited this tendency to need someone to remind us what God was doing when he made our bodies, when he gave us this incredible calling as, as man and woman to be in his image. Um, so because of our brokenness and we see it, it's been there all along. It has been so exacerbated by contraception because it's caused those of us who have been just raised in this culture to think that sexual means genital pleasure. It doesn't even, we don't even have the full connection with at all with what God's awesome plan is. So thank you for reminding us of those things. Yes. And I'll say to Hannah, uh, please again, check out that book, Good News About Sex and Marriage and the chapter, I mean the whole book of course, but the chapter on same-sex questions where I, I do take the time and to unfold the, the pastoral application. It's a very sensitive issue. These are real human beings, and we need to be willing to meet them where they are and take them one step at a time into the fullness of the truth. And that demands great pastoral sensitivity. And And I'm just aware that kind of rattling through the moral things here, what's at stake you know, might have been done without that pastoral sensitivity. Please, please uh, go read about that pastoral sensitivity in in good news about sex and marriage that we we need to have in in dealing with these very sensitive topics. Our next question is from a listener named Joey. Hello, Joey. I hear about many divorced Catholics getting annulments. From what I understand, this is the church declaring that the marriage was never a valid sacrament. I appreciate that the church has the authority to declare this, since a valid marriage cannot be broken by man. It has also brought healing to people I know. However, I cannot help but wonder, is my marriage valid if the church has a mechanism to say it is not? Especially since it almost seems to be a given that the tribunal will grant it. Do you have advice on how to be more at peace with the availability of annulments within the church while having confidence in the validity of my own marriage. Are there resources for re-examining why and how we got married? Would we pass a tribunal as to the validity of our marriage? What invalidates the marriage for that matter? Bless you, Joey. Wow, I, I can tell this is, is weighing on you a bit, and I, I understand why it's weighing on you, because these are weighty matters. And I think you are right to feel the weight of that. Um, forgive me for sounding like a broken record. I know I just recommended this book to the last questioner. <laughs> it's a good book. It's a good book. <laughs> and it is a Q&A book. Um, but I have a whole chapter on what makes a marriage valid, what would make a marriage invalid. Uh, and I go into all the detail of and with the pastoral sensitivity in that book. 
Um, so I'd recommend that for a more thorough read. But Joey, let me give you some of the at least foundational ideas here that I think will be helpful for you. And I think will put your conscience at ease. Mm. And that's what I would like to do here. Yeah. First and foremost, the Catholic Church, this is, this is canon law. So this is straight out of canon law. The Catholic Church assumes always the validity of the marriage unless it is demonstrated with moral certainty otherwise. So the Catholic Church looks at your marriage and immediately assumes it is valid because it has not been demonstrated with moral certainty otherwise. The Catholic Church looks at my marriage to Wendy, and it's just assumed to be valid, right? Every marriage is assumed to be valid unless demonstrated otherwise. So you can rest in that, Joey. Your marriage is assumed to be valid. Why does the Church grant so many annulments? That's what I want to address next. And it could be, and I, I wouldn't doubt that in some cases, maybe maybe there have been annulments granted that shouldn't have been. It's within the realm of possibility, right? That's possible. However, a lot of people are up in arms today about the number of annulments, and they think that all of the tribunals, especially in the United States, have just gone crazy and are granting annulments willy-nilly. And I would, I would just back up and say it's not that bad. There might be some abuses here and there, but it's not that bad. I would say what this is a reflection of is the state of the culture of the world today where there are many, many people who simply go through the motions of a wedding ceremony in the church and do not commit to what marriage is. And that's where the question of annulment comes in. And let me also say this. The large majority of annulments granted by tribunals are what's called a lack-of-form case. What does that mean? A baptized Catholic is bound to follow the form of the sacrament in order for their marriage to be valid. And the form of the sacrament means that as a baptized Catholic, you are having your marriage witnessed by an official witness of the church. Uh, that's that's the just initial sketch of Catholic form. A few other details, but you can read about them in my book. Uh, and, and the large majority of annulments granted in, especially in the United States, are lack of form cases where some a, a baptized Catholic gets goes to the justice of the peace, or a baptized Catholic goes to a Protestant church and doesn't have a dispensation from the church to do so. And those are simple lack of form cases. You apply for your annulment, you demonstrate that you did not follow the form, and boom, there's barely an investigation. That you just have to demonstrate, honestly, we didn't follow the form. If you're a baptized Catholic, your annulment is granted right away right? Because you didn't follow the form. That's the large majority of, of annulments. But even that, e uh, even beyond that, is what I meant to say, beyond that, you have many people who do go come to the church, they go through the ceremony, but they don't commit to what marriage is. Again, I go to, into all the details in the Good News About Sex and Marriage book, but uh, just simply stated, um, a couple needs to commit 
freely, right? If you are there under coercion, if somebody compelled you to be there, it's not a valid marriage. You have to commit freely. You have to make a total gift of yourself. If you put a condition on your consent, if you are saying, I, you know, when you're exchanging your vows in the back of your mind, you're thinking, no way am I going to stay with this person if such and such ever happened. Well, then you're you're, you've put a condition on your consent, and it has to be an unconditional, a total unconditional gift of yourself. It has to be free. It has to be total, unconditional. It has to be faithful. If you say, I'll be true to you uh, all my days, but in the back of your mind, you're, you're saying, I know I'm going to cheat on her, and I, I don't care. I, I, I'm not committing to fidelity. She wants me to be faithful, but no, I still have this girlfriend over here that I'm going to dip into every once in a while. Well, you're not committing to what marriage is, right? And that's not to say that just because you might slip 10 years down the road and have an affair, that your marriage is invalid. You can commit to fidelity and then slip. But what I'm saying is if you don't commit at the start to fidelity, it's not a valid marriage. So it has to be free. It has to be total. It has to be faithful. It has to be open to children. If, if at the altar, when you say, we will, retrieve, we will receive children lovingly from God, you make that commitment but in the back of your mind, you're like, no way. Well, I'm not open to children. In fact, I got a vasectomy last week to make sure we're never going to have children. That is not a valid marriage because you're not committing to what marriage is, right? We have this idea that if you wear the white dress and the tuxedo and you go through the motions, at some point the priest zaps you and you're magically married. No, that's not the case. You are only married if you commit to what marriage is. So, Joey, this is your examination of conscience. Was I free in my commitment? Did I commit in an, an unconditional way? Did I commit to be faithful? And did I commit to be open to children? If you made those commitments, you are validly married. If you examine your conscience and you realize, gosh, I didn't make those commitments. Okay, well, I would I would go talk to a priest and 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 make those commitments. Right? You you can make those commitments now. Right? There's this there's this uh it's it's a, a concept in church understanding that you can grow into the validity of your marriage if you then subsequently make those commitments. So Talk, talk to a priest about that. If you're examining your conscience and you see, you know what, on the wedding day, I didn't really make those commitments. Well, go make them now. Go talk to a priest, make them now, and your marriage is valid. Joey, I really do hope that some of this is, is bringing peace to your mind. I, I get it. I get the anxiety. And I think especially... Um, you know, couples that have maybe had a lot of struggle in their relationship can have that um, question keep coming up. So we are praying for you for just the gift, the supernatural gift of peace. The Lord said, "It's I give you peace, not as the world gives, but I give you my peace. Praying that the Lord will give you his peace and recognizing his presence in your marriage that that the Holy Spirit is the bond between the husband and wife, that it's not up to us. We are all weak human beings. Um, it's it's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who creates this bond uh, as we come and 
in the right dispositions receive the sacrament, minister the sacrament to one another. It's by God's grace. We can't just make it as human beings. And maybe in your questioning, you're knowing your own weakness. So I just encourage you to know that the Lord is in you, in your wife, and is that bond as you um, as you journey together with this deeper understanding of what your sacrament is. Amen. Bless you, Joey. I hope that was helpful. And I apologize again. I just I'm I'm sensitive to. I'm kind of zipping through these questions on the, on the technical level. I just want to express again the sensitivity to the hearts that are involved in these really painful sometimes human questions. The, the church is a mother. Uh, you know, we have canon law and we have moral theology. And when that's divorced from the church's motherly love for her children, it can seem cold or, or technical. And I, I just repent uh, of my own tendency to kind of zip through these things and, and lack, uh, if in any way I'm lacking that, um, that tenderness and that love. So I just wanted to say that. Mm. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Thank you for this podcast. It has helped me on so many levels to understand and grow in my faith more. As a married woman, is it wrong for me to feel arrows towards certain priests? I receive such clarity from some of them, and, and God's graces flow through them in such powerful ways that unite me closer with Him, whether it's through homilies, confession, or spiritual direction. Although no lust is involved, I feel like there's something wrong about it, because why can't this happen with any old priest, not just ones I find attractive. Plus, shouldn't my husband be the only man I rely on? Wow, what an honest question. I, I feel really honored that this person is asking it. Uh, I think we can speak into it, both to affirm what's just normal and human, and maybe to, to also offer caution, which it seems she already understands. So I don't know that we even need to say much more about that mm, caution, mm. but I will say something more about that caution. Um, first, let me affirm what I think is, is human and right. Human beings are attractive. Holy human beings are the most attractive. When you are being blessed by a holy human being, there would be something wrong if you weren't attracted, right? The the blessing itself, I'm being blessed by this by the holiness of this priest. That's beautiful. And beautiful things are attractive. And the proper word uh, for our attraction to the true, the good, and the beautiful is eros. Right? You, I, I have no doubt whatsoever that you are being attracted in these priests to what is true, good, and beautiful. And the, again, the proper name for the attraction to the true, the good, and the beautiful is Eros. I want to start with that affirmation. Uh, we can be and should be rightly attracted to the true, the good, and the beautiful in every human being. 
in every human being. The key word is rightly attracted to the true, the good, and the beautiful in every human being. The remedy for, for disordered eros, the remedy, if we could put it this way, for errant eros, <laughs> is not to think, I should only have eros for one person. Again, we have to qualify, as I've tried to do, what do I mean by eros? I mean it in the broadest sense. The broadest sense here is the attraction to the true, the good, and the beautiful. Right? We should be attracted to the true, the good, and the beautiful in everyone. The broadest sense of the word eros is that. Then eros gets very specific, right? I have an eros for you, Wendy. Mm, and I for you. Well, thanks be to God. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I like I like just to hear you. Can you say that again? <laughs> and I, like I for that. you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we know when we say that, even with our little humor here, which is not just humorous, like I really do get excited when you say that. Um, <laughs> that eros, that kind of eros, is a very specific eros. And I should not have that sp specific eros for anybody else. Mm. That's for you, Wendy, and for you alone. Yeah. Um, so there's the broad sense, there's the specific sense. Mm. If what is getting stirred in you towards these priests shifts from that broad sense of attraction to the true, the good, and the beautiful in these priests, and becomes more of a specific sense and I think it has because you've you yourself caught you caught yourself here like, well, I'm especially attracted to these very physically attractive priests. Mm -hmm. Okay, then then I think something is disordered there. I think there's a crossover from a broad sense of eros, which is fitting and appropriate and good and true and beautiful, to a more specific eros that should be aimed at your husband and not at these priests. And so I invite you to just open that to the Lord. Um, it, it's, it's, the Lord is not afraid of anything in your heart, and He's not going to shame you or scold you for anything in your heart. And, and a, a real appropriate approach to prayer in this situation would be something like this. And I'm just imagining you sitting down with a journal. This is how I process stuff in my heart. I find it very helpful. So that's what I'm inviting you to. Maybe you don't find journaling helpful, but in one way or another, process this with the Lord. Lord, I'm really, I find myself really attracted to Father Joe or whoever it is. I, 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 his masculinity stirs something in my heart to the point that I'm questioning, am I in my heart wavering somehow in, in, an, in my fidelity to my husband? Lord, show me. Show me what's going on in my heart. Show me what this attraction is. Show me what it's rooted in. Show me how to, 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 to allow whatever might be disordered here to be purified so that I can have that right, broad, sacred eros, a proper attraction to what is true, good, and beautiful in this priest. Uh, please do not beat yourself up over this. Please do not fall into an attempt that many people can fall into and often do to annihilate your attraction to these priests. Annihilation is not the proper approach. Now, yes, 
Annihilation of disordered desire? Sure, I'll go with that. Yes. Crucify your disordered passions, St. Paul says. But I'm saying don't try to annihilate eros itself. Ask the Lord to make that fine-tuned distinction in your heart between a proper recognition of what is true, good, and beautiful in these priests and where it where eros becomes errant, and say, Lord, help me make that distinction. JP2 is very clear here. He says, this distinction, although these different movements of our hearts, he says, can sometimes be confused with each other, he says, we are called by Christ to make a clear and proper evaluation of the movements of our hearts. And then he says, this task of making these proper distinctions can be carried out, and it is really worthy of the human person to carry out that task of making these distinctions. So I hope that's helpful. Wendy, do you want to add anything here? I, like you, really loved that this question was asked. I think it's something that must be frequently experienced but not frequently spoken of. So thank you for bringing it up. So many of our listeners are thinking, oh, I'm so glad someone else asked that question. I've been wondering that. So, yeah, we're human. You know, when we get married, we don't lose that tendency to be attracted to other people, and yet we need to just experience that and accept I am human, but what do I do with that experience? Yes, yes. Where, where do I go from here? And so, you know, on the, the level of saying, thank you, Lord, for the goodness I see in this person that I'm attracted to, priest or otherwise, right, you know, right. thank you, Lord. That goodness is a reflection of you, and it, and it blesses me, and may it bless many others as well, and, and draw people closer to you. Like, to have that sense of you're not hiding this from the Lord. You're speaking yes. to him about it right away. You know, that's that keeps it in the light, as we often say. Let's keep it in the light. Um, and then, yes, to to let the Lord show you, you know, if if it's become something that you're thinking on too much, thinking about this person too much, maybe hoping for a certain kind of affirmation from this person, some kind of, oh, I hope he or she laughs when I do this. Mm, you know, mm. you, there's these little subtle ways yep. that we're looking for something from the person that, it, I mean, it's fine when people laugh when we do funny things, but it, we only can know it yep. inside yep. ourselves when we're looking for something. There's like this hidden need inside us that we're hoping that person can meet. That's when we start to just keep keep it real with the Lord and realize that the Lord knows all the needs in your heart. He wants to affirm you. You don't need to go looking for it from this other person. Show the Lord your need for for affirmation and for love and and allow him to speak to you so that you're you're free to see the the gift of these other human beings without kind of attaching something more to that relationship than is what the Lord, you know, is in the light and is in justice and truth and peace and rightness. Yes, amen to that. And I'll I'll just share from my own experience that when I found myself in an unhealthy way looking for that certain attention from someone or wanting him him or her to laugh at my joke or whatever it was, uh, 
I have found real consolation in, in taking those needs to the Lord or to the Blessed Mother and finding the affirmation there. It's real. Mm, yeah. uh, an, go ahead. No, that's right. I just want to agree. Uh, yeah. Another thing I'll share, and I'll, I'll close on this, is that a real safeguard in a marriage is to put what's going on in your heart in the light with your spouse. And if you start thinking, well, that makes me nervous. Okay, then something's off. Something's off. And we've we've both had this experience. I remember years ago when when you came to me and you said you were having a certain attraction to this guy, mm -hmm. and, and and we talked it through and we prayed it through and we looked for where is the errant eros mm -hmm. or is there any errant eros? And and I've done the same. And I remember, uh, you know, this shouldn't be surprising to our our listeners that. We have the struggles that anybody has. And there was a time where I was attached to a certain female that came into my life that you recognized right away was not healthy. Mm -hmm. And it was errant eros. And keeping that in the light with one another, I came to you, I put it in the light with you. Um, that saved it from becoming something much worse, right? Mm -hmm. Nip these things in the bud, right? And one way to nip these things in the bud is to be honest with your spouse about what's really going on. This has been a tremendous safeguard in our relationship. I'm very grateful to you, Wendy, that I can go to you with these things. I'm very grateful that you have come to me with these things in your heart. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise that we, we need to learn to love one another there and, and open ourselves to one another as we open ourselves also to the Lord. I hope I hope that's helpful. To, did you want to add anything on that? I am so grateful that we have those um, conversations, and I, I know that in our relationship that has, you know, really been fruitful. I don't know every relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. and whether that whether will, that's is always the case. Yeah, that that is the thing coming to my mind is it may be that someone else you trust, um, if you feel the need I don't know if you're if you're sensing where you are in your relationship that it's not the right thing to do. I I want to say that that's not. Yeah, that's a good point. I will affirm that as well. Uh, you might know that your husband or your wife would find you sharing that so difficult mm. that he or she might not be able to handle it, and it could cause more trouble. I, I think you're right, Wendy. That's a proper caution. Then find somebody, a third party that you can put it in the light with so that yeah. someone objective can help you decipher the errant eros. Sometimes in, I know I've heard Protestants talk about an accountability partner. Um, I think, you know, there's value in that also, that sense of I need to not just go it alone if I'm experiencing a challenge and maybe, you know, that kind of help um, from someone else that you know has a strong faith is, is yes, the kind of thing yes. you need. Yes. We hope that's helpful for you yeah. and for all our listeners out there. Thank you for submitting that question. It was a tender one, and I'm, I'm, I feel honored that you submitted it, and I hope we gave you some good food for thought. And if you have been blessed by this episode today, we hope that you will take the opportunity to share it with others who may need to hear it. Uh, please keep Wendy and me in your prayers, our family, our mission, and our ministry. Uh, you can imagine there's a lot of spiritual attack doing this kind of work. Yeah, it's true, there is. 
and we rely on the prayers of people who believe in what we're doing. So add us to your prayer list, if you would. Uh, we would be really, really grateful. Add the whole team at the Theology of the Body Institute. We would be so grateful, and their families. Uh, just pray for us when you think of it. And if you believe in what we're doing, would you click the link in the show notes here and consider becoming a patron? Uh, that $10 a month or $25 a month where some people offer us $100 or $200 a month if you're able to afford that. That enables us to do this work. It enables us to pay our staff and, and make this ministry a reality. We'd be so grateful if you are feeling that little nudge from the Holy Spirit to click that link and become a patron. It would really, really help us. Uh, we have a lot of needs at the Theology of the Body Institute. We're looking to hire some new staff in the not-too-distant future as the finances will allow. And our patrons are the ones who, who make that possible. Yes, so, thank you. Thank you so much to all the existing patrons. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to those who are considering, thank you, thank you. We, we will receive your patronage with deep gratitude. Until next time, may you know it in your mind, in your heart, in your very bones, that you are an unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.